0: You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. The series I've been looking at with you is called The Breastplate of Righteousness. And the first session was an introductory idea that there are blessings for those who God deems righteous. And we talked about why a breastplate is needed and we talked about the spiritual application of that. We also had a bit of an overview on the belt of truth as well which was a series we'd done earlier in the year and I just kind of felt on my heart from um, the end of 2018 last year that we needed to spend some time as a church thinking about the, the whole armor the full armor of God it's not your armor it's God's armor notice that mm-hmm. it's the armor of God. It's not something you can do in your own strength and I think that's a really important message for tonight. That's the main thing really tonight is that our righteousness is not our own and we can't work it up in the flesh. Anyway, so talked about blessings of the righteous in the first session. In the second session, um, which was last time, I talked about the righteousness of God. And I don't know if you remember, but I got a little bit philosophical and technical and talked about absolute righteousness and relative righteousness and God can be seen in both of those ways he is absolutely righteous he is in and of himself a righteous God he does things right and he is right his laws are right absolutely but relatively as well relative to us and all our iniquities our sins our transgressions our lack of holiness um, relative to anything else you can think of God is absolutely righteous God is relative relatively righteous as well okay and then i looked at four areas that i saw in the bible that are important to help us understand what the righteousness of god means and the four areas were his faithfulness because he's always faithful he is always faithful we looked at a few verses that connect faithfulness and righteousness in the same sentence and compassion as well he has compassion on the needy he, Jesus a- exemplified that fantastically when he had compassion on the crowds and judgment was the next one though and it was like well it was a nice start because we had faithfulness and compassion but then the third one was like judgment because in order for him to do right and be right and be righteous he has to be a judge he has to be a righteous judge he can't let things go he can't let sins go he can't sweep things under the carpet Um, but the fourth point was salvation he is righteous in his salvation the way he saves us he doesn't just say ah Jan I know you've sinned but I'm just going to let you off because I kind of like you he has to judge and he has to punish sin and so through salvation we see the righteousness of God exercised as he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice the sinless one and that's going to link in perfectly to today's talk on our righteousness by faith. So I'm going to look at three areas. First of all, righteousness by the law. That's not by faith. Righteousness by the law, the law of Moses, if you like, the Old Testament law. Won't spend too long on that, but it helps us to build the picture um, and build the concept up and help us appreciate what we have got. Um, Then righteousness in Christ. And then I'm going to ask the question, why do we actually need a breastplate because by then I'll have convinced you that you are all righteous in Christ, that God sees you as holy and perfect and uh, not through anything you've done. But So why, do we, why are we told to put on the breastplate of righteousness if we already are the righteousness of, uh, of Christ? So um, that's the final part of today's talk and um, we'll start though. Let's talk about the law because righteousness in the Bible is this idea of strict adherence to the law. Adherence, sticking to it, doing it. Like, if if the law is a line, it's a really thin line and you walk it perfectly without deviation anywhere. And so righteousness is a difficult thing to do. In fact, it's impossible. As far as the law is concerned, no one completed it except for Jesus. Jewish tradition states that in the Old Testament there are 613 laws. Now, different people count them in different ways, but the general Jewish teaching is that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. You can read some laws twice, or you can um, see two as the same thing, or whatever. So there's debate as to how many laws there are, but I'm happy to go with 613 for now. That's not counting all the extra subcategories of law that the Pharisees and Sadducees invented to help the Jews out. Yes, it's helpful to have extra laws because it helps you know when you're right and when you're wrong. So rather than say, well, rest on the Sabbath, they would invent extra laws that would be like, well, what constitutes work? If I tie a knot, is that work? Yes, that's work. So you can't tie a shoelace, lighting a fire, work, can't do that. So they had all these kind of things. One Jewish um, person in the first century, it's documented, refused to build the house he had plans for because he thought about it on the Sabbath. And he thought, well, I can't use that, those plans now. I'm going to have to build the house differently because it won't be a holy house. So forgetting all of those anyway, just trying to fulfil the 613, which those extra laws were actually, the idea of them was to help fulfil all of those, you realise that the Ten Commandments were just the beginning. God was only getting started when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. The other thing we need to know about the law is that the law is perfect. So we kind of think of that as really annoying and then I start talking about the extra laws that the Pharisees might have made up and I might come across like I'm saying well you know it's a bit of a waste of time, it's a thin line, you can't walk it, it's too difficult. What's what's the point of this stupid law? Well actually the Bible says the law is perfect. It also says the law is like a schoolmaster in In Galatians. So, anyway, the the two verses I've got on the screen are so then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. That's in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. The law is holy. And then in Psalm 19, David said, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Have you ever looked at law and thought, ah, what a refreshing law? (laughs) Well, David did. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. But if you see it as something to celebrate because God in his grace has told us what is right and wrong and walking in the law actually brings fullness of life, then it does refresh the soul. Because it's not a strict law that we have to obey. Well, it is a strict law we have to obey, but it's not just that. It's not a law just for the sake of it. It actually teaches what pleases God. It'll tell me how to please God. And when I walk in that law, I feel refreshed because I feel good about the fact that I'm living a life that pleases God. So the law is perfect, but the flip side of that truth is that we are not. The law is perfect, but we are not. Some people don't like to hear that, and I know people in this room are quite happy to accept that we're not perfect. And, you know, I mean, as a school teacher, you'd have this debate with children or teenagers. You get a little baby just popped out, because that's how easy childbirth is. (laughs) A little baby. Is that baby sinful or is that baby innocent? And are people intrinsically and basically good? And then they start picking up bad behaviour. Or are they basically bad? Which is what the Bible teaches, because we're all sinful than Adam. And even David said, surely I was sinful from birth, when he um, wrote in Psalm 51. So, um, we're not perfect. A few verses from the Bible. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteous. Righteousness, we're talking about it, aren't we? There's no one, in Romans, according to Romans it says, there is no one who has fulfilled the law perfectly. In Romans 3, the same chapter, but verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Back in Isaiah, it says, all of, us bec- all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Think about that. You know when someone's really annoyed you or offended you, maybe that's never happened to you, but when someone's really annoyed me or offended me and upset me and I haven't really apologised and we haven't really cleared it up, Anything nice they do for me just doesn't wash, does it? Just doesn't seem to... We've got this thing we need to deal with. And Isaiah is saying that when we do good things, sometimes our even our righteous acts are like filthy rags because there's this whole bunch of sin that hasn't been dealt with. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And in James 2, it gets even worse. Just What if you've just managed to walk the line of the Lord really well, but you just... Made one little mistake, just stumbled a little bit. You know, Think of it as a tightrope, if you like, and you just sort of stumbled. Well, actually, if you stumble on a tightrope, you end up in the safety net, or on the floor if there's no safety net. Smart catch-up everywhere. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Because it's one thing to say, well, yeah, I nearly walked all the way across the tightrope, but I tripped at the end and I didn't finish. You're not on the tightrope anymore, are you? You just need to take one wrong step. It doesn't matter about all the other steps that you did that were right. It's like sitting in, not sitting an exam. Well, I did the whole course, but I just didn't show up for the exam. It doesn't matter how many lessons you went to, you didn't complete the law. All you've got to do is one false move. And the whole law, everything we did right, is just out the window. It was pointless. So the law is perfect. There's 613 of them in the Old Testament. It's all perfect. It's written by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we are not perfect. So that leaves us with a problem. We cannot be righteous by the law. Well, righteousness comes through Christ, as everybody in this room knows, understands. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21... God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, having thought about that whole idea about the law, doesn't that make us becoming the righteousness of God even more special? Because it is so jolly impossible to be righteous, and yet Jesus makes us righteous. It's amazing. It's his righteousness not our own so when we think about putting on the breastplate of righteousness (laughs) what we're saying is we can try and be righteous on our own we could try and put on our own breastplate but to stick with the analogy there are chinks in the armour everywhere everywhere I try and do things in my own strength never mind being Jewish I don't know if anyone in here has Jewish blood but I I don't think I do and um, it's still very easy for me to try and earn God's favour by good works. It might not be through keeping the Sabbath or um, doing certain sacrifices or following all the other laws that you find in the Old Testament. It might be through going onto the street on Friday, doing evangelism. That's a good thing to do. But if I'm doing it to try and earn God's favour, I've got it all back to front. It might be helping in the coffee bar. It might be helping uh, set up PA. It might be helping other people. It might be smiling at a neighbour. It might be doing all these good things And I'm thinking to myself, well, because I invited that person to church, that's another tick in my box in God's big tick sheet in heaven. God's got this I spy book of good deeds and he's got (laughs) got it open on page John Petts, and he's got, ah, just uh, smiled at a neighbour. Tick. <laughs> Helped someone push their car and bump start it. Tick. Yeah, it might just make it into heaven. We know that's not true, don't we? But how easily we get caught up in it. Because it's almost like it's it's ingrained in us to, to achieve something through good works. Maybe some have been brought up to believe, or, or not just to believe, but we've brought up knowing that we only get praise off our parents, teachers, or whoever else, by works, by doing good works. It's true in the workplace. You get reward, hopefully, you get rewards if you do well. Some people don't even get rewards if they do well. They, they're just striving to please. They just want to please. And even as a teacher, you'd get a staff room talk about a certain child and they'd say, well, yeah, they're, they're, what's really nice about them is they, just, they want to please. And like, yeah, well, that's okay, but to an extent. Sometimes it can be too far. You just, you're desperate to please people because you're just craving approval. And so this whole idea of looking at the Jewish law as not being able to get us to God. Let's not sneer at the Jews and say, what idiots for trying to get righteousness through the law, because we all do it. We're all guilty of it to some extent or another. If if we're not now, we certainly I I think most people go through that at some point in their life. Best way to describe it is to look at what Paul said in, um, in Romans 4. He refers back to. Abraham and we're going to spend just a bit of time looking at Romans 4 but um, to go back to Abraham you have to look at Genesis 15 which you don't need to turn to uh, because it's not on the screen but it's Romans 4 if you're going to turn anywhere and you've got a bible with you um, it's Romans 4 that I would say to turn to but in Genesis 15 it says he that is Abraham believed in the Lord and he that is God reckoned it to him as Righteousness reckoned or credited, it's like a bank account only, it's not to do with money, it's God's reckoning of who you are and how righteous you are. All right, so if you think good deeds get you. A little bit closer to God a little bit closer to God each time you do one and you sort of perhaps filling up a jar of pennies kind of thing and you might just have touched the bottom of the jar with a few pennies but God just absolutely fills the jar to overflow with righteousness because he does it through our faith it says Abraham believed in the Lord it's that belief but it's not faith on its own because you can even get trapped there I've heard of people saying well if I have a bit more faith That would be credited to me as more righteousness. It doesn't work like that. It's not actually the faith in itself, although that's kind of what it says. It's, It's what is your faith in? It's your faith in the Lord, your faith in Jesus who died for your sins. But Abraham didn't know Jesus, so how does that work? Abraham didn't have a Bible. Abraham lived before Moses, Moses wrote the law. Abraham didn't know about any of the laws. He didn't see the Ten Commandments. He didn't. He might have known in his conscience not to lie, not to steal, not to murder, but he lied about his wife. He broke some of the laws, but can you break a law when there is no law? Well, it's kind of an eternal law. So what did did Abraham do? How did it all work for him? The first thing to understand is Abraham's righteousness wasn't through the law. That's the whole point. His righteousness was by faith. And he's a great example because he lived before the law and also because of, once again, going back to my school teacher days, I used to hate talking about this, circumcision. Yes. And we used to teach Judaism to year eights, which is 12, 13 year olds. And when you get to teach Judaism, you have to talk about circumcision at some point or another. And so there's either red faces, sniggering, a riot. Someone just asking what it is, and it's, I'm just glad I'm talking to an adult audience today. So, um, what
1: is it? What? <laughs> what is it?
0: I'll tell you afterwards, but just it's a physical act that uh, shows real commitment to a cause. And uh, there you go. In Romans 4, verse 3, and we'll see why that's important, all right? Because the Jews could have, the Jewish Christians. Could easily have slipped back into law, and they could, be, in fact, in the Galatians, the book of Galatians, it, it talks about people who were slipping back into the law. You know the phrase "you've fallen from grace"? We use that in English. It doesn't mean that in the Bible. It means actually you've gone back to this this works-based faith, this works-based Christianity. These Galatians had fallen from grace because they'd gone back into the law, and they were saying that you have to be circumcised to be a proper Christian. And it's all wrong. It's like mixing grace and, uh, and law all at once. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. So anyway, we'll see that in Romans 4. So forget Galatians <laughs> for now. We'll have a look at Romans 4. Verse 3, reading from the NIV, what does Scripture say? And he's going to quote Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So if I work at the Bay Coffee Company for John down at the Bay, and I do five hours work at 10 pounds an hour, that's above minimum wage, how much, how much money do I get? 50 quid? Yeah, now, so I do five hours' work for John at the Bay Coffee Company. I've wiped some tables, so I've worked for it. I've served some coffee. I've swept the floor. I've put the chairs up at the end. I've done five hours' work. When he gives me my 50 quid, am I surprised? Is it a gift? Have I earned it? I've earned it. It's not a gift. Okay. Now, if John was my relative and I just walked in and he he said, mate, I just want to give you 50 quid. um, That's a totally different situation, isn't it? Well, I didn't work for it. The one who works, wages are not credited as a gift. Right, so translate that whole idea to righteousness. If you try and work for righteousness, then your righteousness wouldn't be a gift. It would be something you'd worked for. It would be an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, and this isn't saying none of us should have paid jobs, it's talking about working for your righteousness now. To the one who does not work but trusts God... Who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. What is their faith? Their faith in Jesus. The faith in the one who took all the punishment for us. The faith in the one who became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness. That's what our faith is in. Just staying in verse 5. It says we're trusting God who justifies the ungodly. What a phrase. I just have to stop and reread that because we get familiar with this. You can't justify the ungodly. It's just wrong. It goes back to last time's talk. The only way God could justify the ungodly, because God is righteous, is to do it through righteous means. And that is, someone's got to pay the price for this sin. And the only way he's justified us, the ungodly, is through the death and sacrifice of Jesus. I just think it's an incredible thing that our God, who made the universe, an incredible creator, would care about me so much that he would want to justify me, even though I'm the one at fault. That's, that's love, isn't it? Mm. And that's where we've got to put our faith. Not in our own works. It's never going to be enough. Even if you you'd think in your own idea of scales you've done more good deeds than bad, it's just not enough. You're just inherently not good enough. To, to make it to heaven anyway staying in Romans 4 I'm at verse 6 it says David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from work so even David saw it this is since the law's been written blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them Verse nine: Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? So, in my language, is this for just for the Jews who followed the law and one covenant law in particular, because the circumcision was the first sign of the covenant when God made an agreement, a contract, a covenant with Abraham. The sign from Abraham was circumcision. That Abraham was saying, I'm in. This is, this, uh, this is my side of the bargain. So is this righteousness just for those who've made that physical commitment? And that was an argument going around uh, many churches. We've, see, we've, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was, was credited to him as righteousness. Let me read that sentence again. It's in verse nine. We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So even before Abraham obeyed, maybe even before Abraham had heard of circumcision, he was credited as righteous because it's not about physical acts. It's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus. It goes on to say he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Jumping to verse 12. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith. So what he's, Paul is saying is anyone who has faith in Jesus is declared righteous. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes from faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. If if we depend on the law and that's what makes us heirs of the promise, then what's the point of having faith? We'll just try our hardest to to walk this line of of good deeds and and when we get it wrong, we'll make a sacrifice. There's no need for faith. Verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith. See how uh, Paul is just repeating the same point in different ways, just to drill this home because it's so ingrained in us that we have to do good works to get acceptance. Verse 16, so I'll just start again in verse 16 therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be grace and may be guaranteed to all abraham's offspring and that includes you and me look not only to those who are of the law but also those who have the faith of abraham he is the father of us all that's jews and gentiles those who have the same faith as abraham i'm bold enough to dare to say that i've actually got more faith than some people of the jewish race even those jewish people who who subscribe to to their jewish teachings and their heritage not through any credit of my own i've got more faith because i'm putting faith in jesus the one who uh, is more like the faith of abraham it's not, I'm not putting my faith in works. I'm putting my faith in, in Jesus. I'm not, getting, I'm not trying to be righteous by works. I'm trying to be righteous, or I am righteous, because of Jesus. In verse 17. I have made you a father of many nations. Not a nation. Right, so Abraham and Sarah have this child. And it's a child of the promise. And um, in fact, they have two. Well, Sarah, between them, somehow, they have two children. Um, so you could say... A couple of nations because you've got isaac and you've got ishmael but god says you're going to be a father of many nations because anyone whether they're from new zealand poland britain or america or israel if they put their faith in christ they're part of this kingdom they're children of abraham because they're children of the same faith it says in 17 he is our father in the sight of god abraham is our father in the sight of god in whom he believed The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And in that context of he gives life to the dead, he goes on to talk about, and I'll skip over it without reading it all because it'll get a bit laborious, but he goes on to talk about how Abraham was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. Sarah's womb was dead and he brought life out of it. And then he goes on, and if you read these bits in separate sections, you don't see the connection. But then he talks about, he's still talking about things that have been dead and coming to life. He then talks about Jesus, who was dead and came back to life. So in 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written, not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who (laughs) believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. He brings things to life. He brings you to life through his righteousness. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thanks be to God. Now, I know some of that can be a little bit heavy and it's reading through some heavy text, and I even skipped some, but this is so important that we get this right because it is just so easy to slip into works. Here's another thing we can do wrong, I can do wrong, and I was talking about something like this only today. I can think that I'm not doing my job properly because I'm thinking about what you lot think I should be doing. You know, because I'm paid to be a pastor in a church and there are expectations of what a pastor does, expectations from past churches and different pastors with different skills and different things. And if I live my life trying to work out the calling of God by thinking about well, what does everybody think I should be doing, then I'm possibly missing my calling. I, I, I'm, I'm living for an audience of Jesus only. And the, the, the reason I say that is because we can all do that. We can all think, well, I need to do this because... Um, if Anthony sees I've done it, then he'll realise that I'm a good Christian. Or if Mark sees I've done that, he'll, he'll recognise that I'm living a good life or I'm, I'm behaving the way I should be behaving. But we don't do these things to please other people. Again, that's works. and It's not even trying to get righteousness from God. It's just trying to please people. But don't we all do that from time to time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard someone say, I'm, I'm a recovering people pleaser. Which means I'm constantly in that frame of mind of trying not to just please people. Well, what will so-and-so think if I do X, even though I feel that's what I should be doing? Might be misunderstood. Should I try and do it in the dark? What will so-and-so think if I don't do Y, which I did before, but this time I'm not going to do it, because I just don't feel it's right this time. It doesn't matter what so-and-so thinks, because what so-and-so thinks is probably not even watching. And if they are, they're probably watching too hard, and you don't want to please them. Our righteousness is from God, and once we get that right, that's when we start to think about, what is it that I'm going to do that's right for him? So this leads into this, the next session, which is called Practical Righteousness. But for now, let's just rest on this thought, back to 2 corinthians 5 where i started i've already read this verse verse 21 god made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god i spent two years trying to help an accounts department i was an i was called trainee accountant for a year and then i was called assistant accountant for a year and then i went off to bible college Um, but in that time I heard of a phrase which you've probably heard: double-entry bookkeeping. <laughs> uh, if something's a, a plus on one side, it has to be a minus somewhere else. And in in the same way, in a similar sort of way, I kind of saw a double credit going on here: that our sin is credited to Christ. I mean, that's just unthinkable, really, when you know who Christ is—the eternal Son of God—and our sin being credited is just despicable that someone would credit to Jesus all our sinfulness all our wrongdoing it's just not right but that's what he wanted to do for us so that's the one side but on the other side he credits his righteousness over to us I'm just not worthy and I never will be didn't earn it could never earn it Jesus paid it all And sometimes we say those words glibly and we have communion and we thank Jesus for what he's done. But Lord, would you just give us a, a little bit more of an inkling as to what it is you did by crediting us, the ungodly, with your righteousness and taking on you, yourself, your perfect, infinitely perfect self, taking on our sinfulness. Help us to thank you more. Help us to live aright just to thank you for it. So the final part of the talk, which is a lot shorter, you'll be pleased to hear, I've been going for half an hour, is why do we need a breastplate? I've just built you up and saying, look, you're all righteous in God, you don't need to do good works, you don't... I've been, I've been made righteous, I am righteous thanks to Christ, why does Paul tell me to put on the, righteous, the breast of righteousness as part of the armour of God? Here's a phrase to think about. Although you don't work to become righteous... You do become righteous in order to do good works. It just sounds like a riddle. But if we get this the wrong way around, we're just stressed out doing good deeds. I'll read it again. Because I took a while to write it. I might as well read it twice. <laughs> Although you don't work to become righteous, it's what we've just been reading all about with Abraham. It's faith, isn't it, that makes us righteous. You don't work. Once you do become righteous... You want to do those good works. And so, we enter a whole new spiritual battle. Because as soon as the enemy sees that here's a child of God who knows they're righteous in in Christ, and isn't slipping back into works and deeds, and works of the flesh that aren't even of God, that are just going to go up in flames anyway, once the enemy sees that a child of God stepping out and doing good works from a place of righteousness that's when you enter into a spiritual battle. John Piper said, you must be reckoned perfect before you can make headway in becoming good. <laughs> Sounds stupid, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You must be reckoned perfect yeah. before you can make headway in becoming good. I'm perfect in the eyes of God, but I still make mistakes. And I I just want to do more good things. To quote Paul a couple more times, "Do do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Not that I've already obtained all this or already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's taken hold of me and made me righteous. I'm going to press on, but I need to put on this full armour of God because the enemy isn't going to want me to do it. So that's why next time we're going to be talking about stepping out into practical righteousness. We can't just stay where we are, glowing in the glory of being righteous by Christ. It also has a flip side where we need to be living practically righteous lives. And uh, nobody's perfect. We're already righteous in Christ, righteous in Christ, and have peace with God. Now we strive for righteousness in our daily lives. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Thanks for listening. For more information visit brixham.church